This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Welcome to Body Talk. I'm your host, David Lasondag, author, structural integrator, and fascia specialist at the Center for Integrative Medicine at UPMC, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And today, I am incredibly thrilled to introduce you to Dr. Chris Standard, who, when I discovered his practice and what he was doing with medicine, I had to meet him and I had to have him on the podcast so he could share with all of you his vision for healthcare. It's a really, really exciting podcast. I think you're going to, you're going to eat it up guys. But before that, I have to mention a special offer for Body Talk listeners. My friends, Rochelle Clausen and Nicole Tremblay at Anatomyscapes are doing a two-day deep dive into the fascial matrix on the 8th and 9th of March in sunny San Diego. It's part of California that managed to escape uh, the biblical floods that they've been having for the last few weeks, and it's going to be fine there. And if you're listening to Body Talk, that entitles you to a serious discount with the promo code FOD, friend of David 28 you can take this two-day course with a fresh tissue cadaver with expert dissectionists and we're going to go layer by layer when i say we're i'm going to be right there with you because you know you got to stay sharp it's good to explore and refresh yourself about what you think you think you know so i'm going to be right there studenting along with you uh, under the tutelage of rochelle and nicole and that promo code of FOD28 is going to get you about $350 off. This is a $1,249 deep dive, but you're going to get it for $899. But you have to sign up before the 8th of February. So don't wait. Do it now. Okay? Everything will be in the show notes. And with that said, let's get on to this amazing guest that we have today, Dr. Christopher Stander, here on Body Talk. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Body Talk. I am really happy to have is my guest today, Dr. Christopher Standard, who is a physical medicine and rehabilitation physician. He first fell on my radar when a patient of mine went to see him, and he went through a series of MRIs with her and did a body reading kind of scenario that was very similar to what I do physically in the room. And I thought, this is somebody I need to meet. And we got together, we clicked. He runs the program for spine health here at UPMC. And his take on medicine and patient care and how things should be done just resonated with me in every possible way. And I wanted him to share his story and what he's doing with all of you in the audience. Chris, welcome to Body Talk. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, exciting. Thanks for making the time for it. So your background, you came to Pittsburgh from Washington State about five years ago. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. I was there for about 20 years in Seattle. In Seattle. Okay. And what was the impetus that brought you to Pittsburgh to UPMC to start this program? So sort of where you were going earlier, I'm a rehabilitation specialist and I predominantly take care of non-operative spine and musculoskeletal problems. And in particular, I sort of 
drifted into really taking care of complex spine and being sort of near the end of the line when things went bad. And as I went through my medical career, I just by happenstance started working in sort of health policy and payment and started figuring out how the money works in medicine. And I realized very early that the money is what's driving what happens to people more so than what is really meant to help them. Um, And then I went into sort of an evidence-based medicine space where I really started looking at data and understanding how we apply data to health policy and helping people. And as all of that went through, I've been in practice for 25 years, as all of that went through a couple of decades of me, um, I, I developed a significant distaste for our healthcare system. I think it is very focused on doing things to people and making money off of sort of caring for you know, illness without really trying to keep people well or healthy. I don't think that's our incentive. And I don't think the money works that way. And so I just didn't care for it. And I found myself patient by patient trying to undo the harm the medical system had done to them. They had had surgeries they shouldn't have had. They had had lots of injections they shouldn't have had. They'd had medications they shouldn't have had. They'd been told things about their bodies that weren't really true. They hadn't been told things that really could help them. These people would spend 10 minutes with them, and if they could inject them, they would. If they couldn't, they'd sort of move them on. Um, And, you know, even concurrently, I was, you know, the whole opiate issue with OxyContin and other meds sort of started as I left residency and went into practice. And I saw the whole thing, and I, I stopped prescribing opiates for chronic spinal pain in 1999. Um, because I saw what was happening to the few patients I had on it, and I knew that was not a good answer. And I, I just watched the entire sort of sort of cataclysm of that sort of go through. But in that, it just added to the same thing that that I didn't think our healthcare system, the way we thought about back pain and spine care and health and well-being, was really sort of directed the right way. And by about five years ago, I just sort of had it. And and I said, I, I would like to go somewhere where I can try and fix the whole system, not just fix sort of one patient at one time in one visit, but build a better system that actually takes care of a broader population of people so that we can do the right thing and keep people well and get them well and help them understand and help them manage their issues and live their lives better. And that was and that's something you, you weren't able to actually do in Seattle. You weren't able no, to I was system. not. Wow. Because I'm, no, I'm, I'm just not. sitting here going, you had to come to Pittsburgh from Seattle to do something more progressive. Yes. Like, uh, a bit I'm ironic. Right. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> from a healthcare environment. Yeah. The, the mm-hmm. thing about UPMC really is that it has its health plan. And if you are simply essentially trying to build a medical facility to make money, you bill insurance companies for what you do is what you do. That's how you get paid. Right. right. In a health plan like UPMC has, they can sort of do it differently. They can use the money they collect from people to keep them well so they don't have to pay for big hospital bills. So so you took something that could be considered a conflict of interest and actually made it a strength in this case. Yeah. That's fantastic. Exactly. And, I, and spine is one of those cases where I knew that if we could sort of, if we spent less but spent it on the right things, we could get better outcomes and get people healthier while spending less money. And in a system like this, that happens to resonate, right? We can do that. We can take good care of our patients and maybe spend less money, which makes healthcare essentially more affordable for everybody if we do it right. Right. Mm-hmm. And my my own small little piece of the world of that. I'm not the whole thing. I'm, you know, I got spine. 
Right. Yeah. yeah the the body is the body is a big place. <laughs> yes. Um, now now part of one of the one of the key components here that intrigued me was your understanding of of the metrics of it the the shell game of healthcare if you will mm-hmm. and you did a special uh, course at Harvard I believe is that correct mm-hmm. yeah why don't you tell us more about that yeah so there um, there's a, a group of economists there led by Dr Michael Porter who's been studying value based care and what is value based care and how do you get there. What is value in medicine? And value is tricky because it depends on the perspective, right? Value ultimately gets down to cost versus benefit, money versus improvement. And it's whose improvement and whose money becomes the question. That's why it's relative. They do a number of things and they have uh, they have a whole website and, you know, physicians, other medical people can go check it out. The public can go check it out. Um, within that, for health professionals, they have a one-week course that's free. You have to apply and register. And you go to Boston and you hang out at the Harvard Business School and you go through all these cases of people trying to change the healthcare system. And they believe in changing them around a disease process and a disease state, but bringing together an interdisciplinary team to sort of treat the life cycle of a disease in a person and try to get them better. And the thought is that if you really collaborate and bring together collective expertise and focus on sort of the end outcome, the end game of getting somebody better rather than how much you can bill for each individual person along the way, that you can probably get better outcomes and spend less money and hence improve value. That is value, right? We get we get a bigger bang for our buck. We get better health for less money. So in that scenario, everybody wins, which is the everybody way it should wins, work. Which it is should the way work. it should work. So when you got to Pittsburgh, uh, how did you land trying to start something like this here? Was it was it an easy process to get going? Was it a difficult process to get going? Something in the middle? So people at UPMC had been batting around this idea for a while. We have a few sort of fairly progressive thinkers in our system and in our health plan leadership. Um, they just didn't know how to do it. And they didn't. I didn't really know what I was going to do when I got here other than they were going to give me a chance to do this. And so I got here and we had formed a committee of a bunch of different specialties, all sort of thinking about how to do this, but it got very difficult because they were sort of siloed departmental conversations and and it wasn't it wasn't crossing the boundaries of healthcare, right? It wasn't really thinking collaboratively. And I had the luxury when I got here, they they just sort of let me go interview people. And I interviewed probably, I don't know, 50, 60 plus people across UPMC, across Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. um, in various medical and leadership and other spaces. Um, when I over the first three months to understand the problem and the people and what to do. And I went to our chief um, quality officer, Tammy Minier, uh, one day with um, uh, Tony Delito. Tony is the dean of the School of Health and Rehab Sciences and a prolific back pain researcher, a very progressive thinker. And I sort of said, I'm not sure where we're going with this. We're kind of spinning. I've been talking to a lot of people, and I think there's a way to build a much more collaborative structure that meets the needs of our patients, our primary care providers, our EDs, um, and really makes a difference for our population. And she said, okay, then you should do it. (laughs) And so so I said, okay, I guess I'll try to do that. And, you know, the reality was it is hard because it's logistically hard and it's hard because you have to change the way people think and the way the money goes. And you have to change all these embedded habits and belief structures in the health system, which is difficult. Yeah. Um, what wasn't difficult was the idea that this is 
making our patients healthier, right? So we're actually called the program for spine health. It's not a pain clinic. It's not about pain, right? It's mm -hmm. about health and well-being and wellness. And when the currency and the metric of medical conversations becomes about patient well-being, health, their long-term outcomes, their ability to live their lives, that resonates with every medical provider. That's why all of us went into this for the most part, right? Um, and so when I can get it into that level of currency, that that really is what it's about. It's not about me. It's not about making money. It's not about filling my clinic. It's not about my department versus somebody else's. It's not about all these internal games within a system. Um, it resonated and everybody sort of supported it and supported the concept and the idea. And, you know, if you can do something like this where you can make the patients better, you can help the system, you can make individual providers, you know, lives and clinics better because they're getting more of the patients they want. You can provide support for people who don't have it. Um, you can make a difference because you make lots of things better. And that sort of became the way of going about it. And so I didn't have trouble with buy-in from my surgical colleagues, from my rehab colleagues, from my physical therapy colleagues, from I just didn't have any trouble with that with the leadership of the health plan. I had no trouble with buy-in. They all sort of understood what we're trying to do. The logistics, the actual shifting thought, the the threat of what well, you're taking things away, the threat right. of you're not going to fill an MRI machine, the threat of what do you mean you want less patients in an operating room? That's how we make money, right? Yeah. That stuff bounces back and forth a lot. Medicine is not about real estate. Medicine is about people. Mm -hmm. It is. And, and it's hard sometimes for uh, spreadsheet medicine um, to get with that. I, I go back a um, little, little bit of a tangent here, but I think back to when I worked in advertising back in the 1980s in Florida, and I worked with a syndicated advertiser and we primarily did uh, supermarkets and car dealerships. And we, there were certain packages and they could be customized, you know, print, radio, all the things. And we were breaking into a new territory that I thought was the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. It was advertising for hospitals. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why would you need to do that? They're hospitals. People already know to go there. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> yes, you were wrong. <laughs> do you think that kind of team mentality feeds into that sort of internecine conflict that really has no place in the system? Yeah, I think it does. And I think the, I don't want to go too far off into politics. I, I think there's a conflict between unfettered capitalism and medicine and health. Sure. Right. My, you know, I went into I see that in almost every industry. So I, you can't just. Yeah. You know, I went into medicine to help people and that's what we really should be doing. And you have the arguments over is healthcare a luxury or a right? I just have very much come to believe that that we are all in this together. And the way to be healthy is to keep all of us healthy. And if a large part of our population is unhealthy, that puts a drag on the rest of the population all the way around and is fundamentally unfair and perhaps a bit immoral as well. Yeah. But, you know, we all get better together because we're all in this together. There's a wonderful right. saying from the late Senator Paul Wellstone, we all do better when we all do better. Yeah, exactly. How hard is that to understand? It's not that hard to understand. And I think, you know, when I, when you really look at how the system works, it's like everything else. You get into the sausage making, it's not very pretty in medicine and the way the money works and how people get paid and why do you really wonder why new hospitals go up in Cranberry and old hospitals close in Braddock, right? If you really think for a little while, it's not too hard to figure that out. 
no, it but isn't. it doesn't mean it's right. And so how do we get to a system where providing care for everybody? Because when we all do better, we all do better, right? That is the real way this goes. I was just reading a book called A Heart That Works. I don't know mm -hmm. if you're familiar with that no. one. It's relatively new. I'm blanking on the author. I'll put it in the show notes, listeners. It's about a husband, a father, who had three children and his two-year-old got an incurable tumor. And he was living in London at the time, so he had access to the NHS, which he is thrilled with the National Health Service. And when he was asked, what, what's the biggest difference between working through the National Health Service in UK and being here in the States, he said, you know, the time that I would have had to have taken every month spending hours on the phone with the insurance company to find out if they were going to pay for this $600 drug that was going to help my son was time I didn't have to spend that I could spend with my son while he was still alive mm -hmm. and how much better that made it for everybody as opposed to everything. Yeah. Plus the monthly anxiety of what am I, what am I going to have to waste time on this month? Because yeah. the system doesn't work well. No. And I've, you know, over my career, you know, I've talked to lots of people, but I've had patients who had insurance where they, they couldn't leave their job. I had patients where they they couldn't leave the state because the insurance didn't cover the same things once they left the state. So if their kids moved away, they couldn't go because if they left the state, they'd never get the medication they were getting. And lots of people who can't access what they need. And, and you know, our system is sort of fragmented and it is siloed. And, and human beings aren't, right? Human beings right. are whole things, right? And, and even if you think, you know, in the larger society, the better we all are, the better we all are. Our bodies work that way too, right? The healthier our body is, the healthier everything is. And when you look at, we start looking at spine issues and, and, you know, there are a collection of things that go with back pain and they range from anxiety and depression to obesity, to heart disease, to diabetes. They're all similar, right? They interplay with one another and, and they are related medically and they're related from socioeconomically, right? They go together. And so, getting people well means getting people whole getting our society well means getting our society whole right it's the same thing in a way and so in our, our program we took on the microcosm of that essentially which is the person right that we focus on the health and well-being of them and and the idea is that if we can on an individual basis you know take the time talk to people understand what they're struggling with understand what their their goals in life are or if they even have any anymore one one tragic thing of a lot of my patients i think is that they don't they've lost sight of any goal for their life because they've hurt for so long and never gotten an answer and they don't know what to do or where to go and that that's i don't care who you are that's not a good state in life no it isn't um, it isn't I, I see that too often myself yeah and so part of rehab is rebuilding those goals right and some people have no goals some people have goals that are unrealistic because they don't really understand themselves I think when you head out in life, you don't realize, but there are, you know, lots and lots and lots of doors around you. And most of us don't open most of them. Right. And sometimes you have to go check out some other ones. And some mm -hmm. people don't have access to as many doors as others. And you have to yeah. build that for them. You have to help create access for them because they need it. Right. And so we sort of, again, we take that on one by one and we try to help people understand and understand what's wrong with them and what it may be with their spine and how that interplays with their hip or their knee or their neuropathy or their medications for whatever they take or their fear and anxiety right and how they all interplay to sort of disrupt the path and well-being of their life and so you have to sort of get at all that to get them to a better state 
Yeah, and that takes time, which is something a lot of the current models don't allow for. The, the, the time is you need to see X number of people within this particular uh, frame for today. And that yeah. doesn't always work very well. Typically, how long do you spend with an average patient on intake with, with you and your team combined? Well, for me personally, it's an hour. Okay. Um, our PT would spend 45 minutes with them when they see them. We have a psychologist who spends an hour with them if they see the psychologist. Mm -hmm. We have a health coach and dietitian. I think they're half hour, hour when they see them. Um, yeah, it's... You've, you've done this a long time, too. To really get somebody better, you have to understand somebody. I need to understand them. They need to trust me. Yes. Right. Trust that, is huge. That, mm -hmm. that, that I am that I understand them well enough to do the right thing for them and to help them see the right thing, to help them with the information they need to make the right choice for their life. Right. Right. Um, but you, you can't do that in 10 minutes. It's impossible. No, it's just no. impossible. And I, you know, I, it's hard to, hard to really look at like somebody has three MRIs. I can't look at three MRIs in 10 minutes. Right. I can't even do that. <laughs> much less location. You look at one MRI in 10 minutes. One MRI in 10 minutes can be hard. Right. Mm -hmm. three so, so, so you had the, you had the great, um, opportunity here to basically recreate everything from whole cloth nobody was looking over your shoulder saying hey you need you need to get your numbers up well they were but they 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 calmed themselves down yeah <laughs> how did you how did you how did you calm them down so you you start with a couple of things so one you say sort of why spine why would upmc or any other system want to pay attention to spine spine is back and neck pain are the most expensive healthcare conditions in the united states which is sort of astounding right you think about cancer, heart disease, these kill people regularly, right? Tragically. Yeah. Um, back pain doesn't, it, it definitely disrupts a lot of lives, but it's not killing people. Um, but we spend more money on back and neck pain than any other single health condition in the U.S. So it's remarkably expensive. Um, and then you throw in all the, it's it's the most common cause of disability in working age adults, right? So you throw in the, the socioeconomic cost of sort of disruption of life. It's an enormous thing. So one, there's a ton of money sort of there. Um, and truthfully, our system is not very good, right? We are fragmented and we focus on stuff, surgeries and screws and shots and pills, right? We focus on stuff. Um, it's pretty mechanical in that way. It's pretty mechanical, right? But people aren't. And so in that, what you can, what we started doing early on is looking to see what happened to people we saw, where did they go? And what we saw is that we had very high levels of people going to physical therapy. We had very few people going to ERs. We don't give out opiates. Our opiate use went down. Mm -hmm. um, we found that in general, as we kept looking at it, the cost of healthcare total for these people we were seeing went down, right? That we were spending less on them because they were using things that were more efficient. As we kept going, we found that surgical rates went down. Um, we haven't looked closely enough, but I assume hospitalizations and other things go down as well. What we find is a general decline in sort of healthcare spending totally for these people because they're healthier and they're not bouncing around. They don't see, we help them. We listen to them. We have nurses who answer the phones when they call. They don't get a voicemail or an auto, automated whatever. They get a nurse. That is, that right? is one of the best things in the world. People they, who they, actually pick up the phone and talk to you. That's they call and they get Don or Gia or Stacy picks up the phone and says, hi. Yeah. And says, "Oh, I'm sorry to hear you're struggling today. What are we doing, right? And if they have a if they have trouble, they see us. And if our PTs, we talk to our PTs every week. So the PT sees somebody and says, "I don't like this. They're weak." We say, "Okay, we'll see them tomorrow." 
right? And by doing that, we could be a lot more efficient. So that person isn't going to an ER, they're not going off to another surgeon who says, go get another MRI, and, and it, they're just not bouncing everywhere. And so that data became sort of clear early on that that's what was happening with our patients. Yeah. Um, and our patients like it, right? Yeah. The, the positive, the comments were, the patients like it. They like being treated like a human being. And right? that's they, right. Yeah, and, that's, and that already is going to improve your outcomes. That already. And they're going to be more compliant in, in all of those right. things. So. Right. I, I think what's unique about the situation you're in here is because the hospital system has a health plan, you have access to that data in a way that somebody else might not because they are in this hospital, but they're using that health plan and that health plan and the other health plan. And there's no way you can track all those variables. No, you can't. We can track all of that. And we have a vested interest in doing this, right? That right. from, you know... UPMC, you know, this is this. I don't want this to come out wrong in any way. I, I think the the leadership at UPMC. I am, you know, again, I've done this a long time, and I can be a bit cynical. Um, but I found them remarkably supportive, and I found them remarkably oriented towards really wanting people to be well. The vast majority of the leadership are came up through the healthcare ranks. A lot, many of them were providers, mm -hmm. right? so, they, so they they really see like patients at the end of this. And their economic realities that drive our system. Um, but in a health plan like this, we can actually take that interest in sort of making people healthier. And if you do it right, you do it in a way that is financially sound. So it actually is beneficial and you can afford to do it and you can shift dollars around. Right. If you're not losing money on really expensive things, don't don't help people. You can shift those to a psychologist or a health coach. Right. Right. That do help people. Right. And then you don't have to, since you're not paying for the big expensive things, maybe you can take those dollars and put them into other things. And you'll see this in other systems where they provide, you know, transportation or meals or other things because, you know, it's, it's, you'd rather send, you know, a mobile phlebotomist to somebody's house to draw their blood than have them go to the ER to get their blood drawn. So things like that you can do in a system like this and you can rethink how we take care of people and, and if our goal is to have our, you know, our patients and, and what are termed our members or whatever, healthy and happy with our care and able to find us when they need us and able to get to the services they need when they need things and get, get you know, straightforward health care when they need it and find access to people like me who are sort of really rare specialty types yeah. um, when they need that, um, that's a good system, right? So if you can pull all that off, you can have a good system. And that is sort of what they want. That's, that's what the leadership does want, right? So it's in some ways, it, it's a, that's why I wound up here, right? Because we have this capacity. Body Talk will return after the break. And now back to our interview with Dr. Christopher Standard. What remains? You, you obviously have put together a pretty good structure that seems to, you've got several locations that you treat out of. So there's some replication happening, I mm -hmm. assume. There is. But like, what are, what are, what are the short range goals and the long range goals for you at this point? So there are a lot of headwinds, right? The system is what the system is, right? The system is a giant Titanic of an operation, right? Healthcare. So. Yeah. So and hard like thing to steer. It is, and there are vested interests in dysfunction because if there's dis if there's dysfunction somewhere, somebody is profiting off of it, right? right. Mm -hmm. Whoever is profiting off of that, and whatever industry you're in, does not want to lose that profit, right? 
So you always have that everywhere. So if you're nature. you're doing less of something, somebody somebody is getting less money. It's a bit of musical chairs. Yeah. Right. And so you have to deal with that, that the system is sort of wired to perpetuate itself itself because those with vested interests keep their foot in the door to perpetuate their interests to perpetuate the system. Right. So if you want to restructure that, it's difficult because there are a lot of headwinds is we constantly run into, but you can't do this because you're not generating money and you can't do that because you're not generating money. And like, that's the, the whole point, like having people understand. Saving money is generating money in a different way. Yeah? It is. It is. Difficult, difficult math sometimes though, right? <laughs> and, a, and a quarterly budget is difficult math. One thing I did say to a lot of people when I got here is that it's very hard to understand what we do if you can't see it, right? If you can't see this as a thing. Sure. And so... You know, when you think I have somebody has back pain, well, my choices are I can send them to physical therapy. They can go to a chiropractor. Maybe I can try some uh, some acupuncture. I can give them some anti-inflammatories. Um, or, you know, if things like that don't work, we're really getting down to like we're going to inject them or operate them or stick them on opiates. Right. And I remember being at a, a conference years ago as a spine conference and they were doing like an audience survey question. They put up a case and they're asking all these surgeons and physicians in the audience, 85% surgeons, the group was, but asking them, okay, if this were your patient, what would you do? Would you, it was a, somebody not getting better from something and really they were getting at, do you operate on this? So would you fuse them? Would you give them a disc replacement? Would you put them on opiates or would you, or would you, or would you tell them to live with it? Right. And I sort of walked up to the microphone. I said, how about another choice? Right. Mm -hmm. How about you help them understand this? You try to get to the roots of why they're struggling so hard and you help them live better. And the whole there are 500 people in the audience, just silent. They didn't really they didn't understand what I was saying. Right, right, right. Right. It wasn't in their imagination. So when I got to Pittsburgh, it takes me a lot. Like people don't understand what I do, right? It's hard to imagine <laughs> the idea yeah. that you can go to somebody who is struggling with a spine problem and mm-hmm. maybe get a few pictures or maybe just look at their pictures and you can talk to them and you can educate them and you can help them understand what's going on and you can help them see the barriers to improvement and you can help them restructure goals in a way they're going to work and a pacing of goals. How do you, how quickly yeah. do you get to what you want to get to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can restructure pacing and then you can give them resources to help them get there and empower them to do this, that they can really live better, right? And that they would choose to do this if this were a choice. And if people don't know that's a choice, how can they, it's like a, it's like a blind spot in their brain. How can they ever think, right? How can you, you know, how do you know what New York City looks like if you've never been there or saw a picture of it, right? Like, how can you, how could you imagine Times Square if you've never seen a picture or been there? Very hard. I would hazard that people who come to see you are locked in that binary choice mode between there's either a pharmacological solution or a surgical solution. And and those are the only two things that could be possible. And the truth is neither of those really works. No, there's, there is no drug that shows long-term benefit in absolving people of back pain. Absolutely. There is no surgery to absolve people of low back pain. We can take pressure off nerves and things like that. Leg pain we're better at. We largely do surgery to save nerves, right? Stop nerve pain and, and protect neurologic structures. Um, curing back pain is not what we do, right? Mm-hmm. So, so in a way, we have to sort of figure this out better. But the idea that you can do that, that you can actually work with people in a way where they can understand how to help themselves live better um, is a tough sell. People just can't quite see it. 
And in, in our clinic, you see a dramatic drop in surgical rates. And I've tried to explain this and that we don't withhold anything. There's no rationing. I don't get any more money if I send somebody to surgery. Don't like we've deliberately disen disentangled ourselves from any incentives, right? Nice. That's great. I make mm -hmm. no money from somebody doing a surgery. I, I make no penalty if they do it. No way. It's, it, I'm totally agnostic there, but <laughs> I'm financially agnostic, right? <laughs> I love it. But, you know, when somebody needs surgery, we send them for surgery, right? We send patients when they when Sometimes they Sometimes really it is do. necessary. They yeah. do. And about 3% of our patients go to surgery. But that's much lower than one might expect from the population we see based on everything we know. And my answer to the surgeons and the people who ask me this is that I am not deferring surgery. I'm not avoiding surgery. I'm giving somebody another option. That's sort of that door number three, right? Mm -hmm. That if door number one is surgery, door number two is pain pills and put up with it. But I present them with a door number three, which is... We're going to work with how you exercise and how you move, and we're going to understand your back a bit, and we're going to have you talk to our psychologist, and we have some really skilled physical therapists who can help you with why you're not doing things so well. And we can get and work on your diet and nutrition. We can get you living better, and you'll feel better, and life will be better. People take door number three, yeah. right? If you give them that door, they take it. And if they don't know the door is there, they don't know. But if the door is there, they take it. And that's why they don't go to surgery, I think, that, that they have a, a different door. Well, the, the body does have a regenerative capacity. Yes. But, of course, that's that's yeah. governed by the forces that it's under. If you change those forces, mm -hmm. uh, things go in one direction or another direction. But the, the metaphor that's coming to me listening to you is it's sort of like when you sit down with somebody, it's like, hi, you never got an owner's manual for your body. Mm -mm. And they they're not all standard, so we're gonna we're gonna figure that out together, and you're gonna have a better idea of the owner's manual that you never got, and then we're gonna show you how to work with that. And if you think through what patients really get, what those of us who go to the doctor really get, right? You go, imagine you get your MRI report. That's really in Greek, right? That's the language of medicine, radiology. It's Greek, right? Yeah. Unless you can read Greek, you have no idea what the heck that says. Yeah, it's Greek right? and fuzzy pictures, and it's really scary. Right. And, and almost none of us, those of us over 40 or 50, we're not, our pictures are not normal. My knee is not normal. My back is not normal. My shoulder is not normal. I'm sure they're all abnormal because, because <laughs> I am not 20. Right. I, no part of me is confused with a 20 year old. So patients get that. Right. And they get these sort of obtuse explanations of things and they don't really understand the human body necessarily. And People don't make the connection between stress and diet and behavior and sleep and being well and actually like the whole connection isn't drawn for them. And so they get very scary words. Um, they get given medications that very often have side effects. Then we give more medications to treat the side effects of the medications we gave them. Um, and then we inject them and maybe they feel good for a few hours or a few weeks, but then they don't again. Right. And then yeah. we and then we do something else that harms them. And. You know, you operate on people, but another 10 or 20% of people get operated on, get operated again in a few years, right? It just, it like keeps going. I've got family members like that. You know, Sadly. and, you know, it's interesting. You go to some communities, if you look at, you know, outcomes for, you know, African-Americans who go to spine surgery, their outcomes are worse. They do worse. They have higher mortality rates from spine surgery, which is horrifying. Wow. Um, and then oddly, when you start surveying them, they have less interest in getting surgery, right? Like, imagine that. But that goes back to their experience, right? No, that seems like a direct correlation to me. It seems like a direct correlation. It seems like they know more. They know what's going on, right? Yeah. Like, so yeah. they say no. Um, but all this stuff is very scary for a patient, right? That it's very hard to understand. And how can they see their way through? And so as a rehab person, like my, you know, my training in rehab goes back to strokes and spinal cord injury and horrible trauma. And I spent the bulk of my career spent at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, which is uh, the only 
trauma center for five states, right? Ooh. So it's in Seattle and it gets all the trauma from Alaska, Idaho, Washington, uh, Montana, and Wyoming, all five send all of their level one trauma to Harborview. So it is helicopters all day long. It is hyper-specialized trauma suites and everything else. It's an amazing institution. You see everything, right? You see so much sort of disruption, right? And so in that, the, the rehabilitation of it, how do you rehabilitate somebody after trauma? And is that trauma, you know, falling off a cliff, being hit by a car, having your hand cut off in a saw? Is it you know, it hurts your back. Is it you hurt your back picking up your kid? Is it you, you know, there's all sorts of traumas out there. Right. Somebody did something horrible to you, right? These are all, these all happen. Mm -hmm. um, and each one has its own pathology. It does. And, and but one commonality in the rehab world is that I need to be able to see what is possible, right? Yeah. People get exactly hurt what you mean. and they can't see what is possible. They can't see what is better. I thought it was early in my career, I saw this study on um, quality of life surveys after spinal cord injury, which is a devastating injury. And if you survey people about their quality of life, self-perceived quality of life right after their injury, it's terrible, mm -hmm. right? If you wait 10 years, it's exactly like non-spinal cord populations, right? They have discovered what's possible, yeah, right? And they do the possible things. And, it's and, and they do the possible. And frankly, they expand the boundaries that we think is possible, right? That's what they do routinely, yeah. right? Because yeah. people are remarkable when empowered to do so. People are remarkable, right? They always exceed expectations. They do. If you let them. Awesome. Yeah, they yeah. do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in a lot of people who are injured, um, their life has changed. Their trajectory has changed. What they thought of themselves, their their image themselves, their trust in their body, their belief in things. They can't see what is possible. They can't see the other side of this, right? They can't see what a goal is. So that is part of my job, right? And having done this long enough, I can sort of, I try to help people see that. Right. And so if you can do this, if if patients can see that, again, you think you're the patient, you get 10 minutes with your doctor, they use language you don't understand. They don't really tell you the complications of what they're about to do to you. You get these reports back that are in Greek that you can't really understand. You know, I, very few of my patients have taken anatomy courses, right? They really <laughs> just don't know. And then you can't see what's possible. And all you see are the people around you in your life who've had bad outcomes from things because they're the ones you see. The ones with good outcomes don't talk to you because they're fine. Right. Well, what always right. amazes me, Chris, is the people who are trying to explain their perception of their internal circumstance, whatever it is. And they're almost apologetic that they don't, they have the sense that there's a special language that they need to know that they don't know. You know, however you describe your experience is fine. It's our job to translate that into something actionable. It's not yeah. your job to come in knowing our language. That's no. silly. No, it's not. And and we again, we can't understand what they need or want if we don't listen to them. Um, right. But again, in all that is is sometimes somebody has to help them see. Like I said, if if part of my job is to help the healthcare system see and other healthcare providers see that there is another way to do this. There is a way to get people better from what seemingly are recalcitrant problems. Um, you do the same with people. They just can't quite see the answer. And I, I discovered a long time ago, it's interesting. I've said, I've told this at several meetings and things, and apparently I, I, this resonates with other sort of systems and belief structures, but I came across the belief structure on my own that human beings need five things to be well, okay. right? We need, we need to sleep. Sleep is when we, we, we repair ourselves, we restore ourselves when we sleep. We need some sort of exercise because we are use it or lose it creatures. If we're not moving, we're getting weaker. Mm -hmm. um, we do need a decent diet. We are what we eat when it comes down to it, right? 
Um, we need social engagement. We are social creatures. And we need a passion or a goal or a mission or a reason to go. And if you have all of those, you're a remarkably happy individual for the most part, right? You're somewhere with people you love, doing something you love that's meaningful to you. You can sleep as much as you want. You have good food and you get to move around and play. Like, that's a fun time. Yeah, I'm looking at that list and I can't think of anything missing from it or that I would add to it. That's so, but perfect. what I what I find is that my people with with pain and injury have maybe one or two of those, if any. Right. And so the treatment revolves around that. Right. It's around rebuilding these things. If you can rebuild those things, people are happier. They have a better life because that is a better life. Right. And so that's what we focus on. And then it was sort of redirect people away from the make my pain go away, which I can't do very well. Nobody can do very well. It's not just me. <laughs> None of us can do that very well. <laughs> if I can't do that, maybe I can help you with these things and we can help you live better. Right. And, and then that becomes the game, right, that we get there. But if you restore these things for people, they do better. And so that this imagery, this ability to see this, this ability to track sort of those decrements in people's lives that they lost after they got hurt or whatever happened to them, happened to them. The, the pattern to rebuild, the, the idea of rebuilding them sort of matters. And I, I, you know, I use this image essentially in one of the if you go to Seattle and you go further west and you go out to the Washington coast, um, northwest, the very northwest edge of the continental United States, mm -hmm. you go to the whole rainforest. It's, a, it's, a, it's an old growth forest, never been logged, and it's a rainforest. It, well, it gets enough rain to be a rainforest. Wow. So hanging moss, but there are 300 foot tall pine trees with hanging moss. It's a really cool place. And so I have this picture I'll use when I talk sometimes of a picture from in the forest. And on the edge of the forest is the Pacific Ocean. Right. That's on the edge of it. Okay. There's a picture looking through the forest and you can see the ocean through the back of the forest. Right. And what I talk about is like, if you're lost in the forest somewhere, you don't want to be right. You're in the forest. This is not where you want to be. You are hurt. You were scared. You were injured. You were all sorts of things. Right. Whatever happens, you wind up somewhere you don't want to be. First thing you have to do is figure out well, where's a better place. Right. Where on the other side of that forest is better? Which of these gaps in the trees is better for me? Which am I shooting for? And then you steadily work your way there. Right. You you use all these tools around you of everything we can think of. Um, things I do, things you do, be it physical therapists, be it medications, be it shots, be it psychologists, be it surgeons. If what we're doing to help you is moving you out of the forest to that space in the light, to the better part of your life, we're helping you. If what we're doing is spinning you in circles, you go nowhere or directing you away from it, we are not helping you and we should stop that. We should be moving towards there. And there isn't one path. There are trees. You got to zigzag a bit, right? It's not a straight yeah. line. That's never linear. But once people start moving there, once you start chasing that sort of path, that vision, that place, life is better, right? You're on your way. You've had direction. You have forward progress. You're chasing something that's meaningful to you. That's a better place, right? And so if you can get people into that space, they can be better and then they keep going. And oddly, once you, once you empower people and they start getting better, they, they tend to keep going, right? Cause yeah, they, they, they like, stay better. They rarely backslide. I mean, yeah, things will happen. Slings and arrows and outrageous fortune, but, yeah. but uh, age, not... age, age, time catches us all, right? Age catches everybody, but people do that. And once they start to go, they tend to keep going because they just intuitively know it is way better than where they were and they don't want to go backwards. 
And if your only choices in life are forward or backward, which is our only choices, stationary is almost never a choice. So, so there's one thing on this list I want to loop back to because I'm just curious about your perspective. On, uh, and that was number four on your five-point list, which was social engagement. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we've seen huge disruptions in social engagement over the last two to three years. I've seen working through 2020 and 2021 I, I don't know it for a fact. I just know it's true. There were some people I was treating that I was probably their biggest, most regular source of social engagement. Mm-hmm. And I think it actually delayed what a normal result time frame would be. And on another mm-hmm. level, it was okay because th- that need for social engagement didn't go away. If anything, it got stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious how you saw it affect your patients and your practice. Oh, horribly adverse. So, uh, you know, one thing we definitely saw with the whole isolation pandemic is huge spikes in depression and anxiety, right, which are probably tied to that lack of social engagement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're in the, the put your hands on people sort of work, right? Yeah, yeah. The whole idea of a compassionate human who listens to you, who is skilled at what they do and helps you with your, like puts their hands on your body and helps you sort of feel better, move better, function better, is remarkably powerful. And what I saw was people didn't have that. I had lots of patients who had established a system that kept them well. They went to their pool. They went for walks with their friends. They did these things. They went and did stuff. And then all went away. And all the pools closed and all the gyms closed and all the classes closed and everything shut down. And then the buses shut down and then the jobs went away and then money went away. And they couldn't do it anymore. And so I had lots of people who had entire structures they had built around them to keep themselves well that just collapsed, right? The things that they had built to stay well just collapsed and vanished on them and they became unwell. Some other people took up other things that they really weren't prepared to do and overdid it because they had one option (laughs) for what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But more struggled from loss of structure. And, you know, my older patients who couldn't see their grandchildren because they didn't want to give them or catch COVID from them. And the same people who no longer could go to the gym and the pools closed on them and the public infrastructure closed on them, right? It had detrimental effects because they weren't moving. Um, they got scared and anxious. They didn't sleep as well. They didn't have exercise. They didn't have social connections. Um, and they did less well, right? And they struggled and all sorts of problems sort of came up and, and had a lot of conversations about trying to rebuild sort of the systems that people use to keep their lives well, right? Because they all went away. And I think that's one of the the underappreciated things of the pandemic is how much of that actually happened, right? The consequences of being, you know, whether we like it or not, COVID COVID disproportionately kills people over 65. Yeah, right. It really does. And so that population justifiably is far less likely to interact with humanity, right? Yes. when When I go out to social events now, there are still people who are masked. And they tend to be people I estimate to be 65 and older, mm-hmm. almost yeah. entirely. Yeah. But to imagine that doesn't take a toll on them psychologically, physically, disrupt their well-being, disrupt all those five things I just told you about, those pathways, is crazy. Of course it does. Yeah. Because they need to be out in the world to experience all those things. And they're, and they're not. And that is like one a huge consequence of the pandemic we sort of are grappling with. I think we're going to have all sorts of, you know... Heart, if we start tracking heart disease, and I'm sure if we look at suicide rates and alcoholism and a few other things, we're going to find really bad numbers for our population, 
when we come back 10 years from now and look at what happened to us. Well, I know even a year ago, uh, I was seeing reports about how much alcohol consumption is going up in this country, mm-hmm. just yeah. across the board, not yeah. even specific to a demographic. Yeah, so, yeah across the board. Surprise me. Yeah. No, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me either. As a population health goes, that's not, but you know, we're, we're certainly not going to improve population health by imposing a pandemic, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> or, or prohibition or, for that matter. Yeah, no, no, or prohibition. <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't work out so well either. Chris, thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. This has been great a great conversation. conversation. Yep. It feels like a part one to me, but I just, again, I, I love the way you practice medicine and I love that you were willing to come here and share it with uh, the listeners of Body Talk. It really means a lot to me and I'm, I'm glad you're out there and I'm glad you're somebody I can refer people to because you're just down the street. Just down the street. Appreciate right. that. Thanks, Chris. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to another installment of Body Talk. We live in an attention economy, and I promise you, as long as you give this podcast your attention, I will make it worth your attention. Thank you so much. If you want to support the show, please, wherever you get your podcasts, go to the page where Body Talk exists and give it five stars. Leave a narrative review on Apple Podcasts if you're feeling crazy. If you're feeling really, really crazy, you can go to patreon.com backslash bodytalkradio and become a contributing member for as little as $3 a month. It really, really helps. You can also get some cool swag because you got to have swag, right? Anyway, I'm David Lasondak. I think you know that by now. And, uh, The music you hear, as always, is by David and the Disasters. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll see you next time right here on Body Talk.